0: Thank you for choosing to listen to episode number 51 of Kansas City Food Memories. This is my New Year's edition with special guest Bill Crooks, formerly of Gilbert Robinson, PBNJ j Group, and even more. So sit back and enjoy this, but do not forget that this is a taped presentation of a live call-in show. So do not call or text in when prompted, but sit back and enjoy, and I look forward to a new year starting next week. Thank you. Well, good morning. This is Robert Dunsing, and thank you for tuning in today on the eve of New Year's Eve to Kansas City Food Memories, where we talk about the people, the places, and the food that make Kansas City such a great place. Today's show is going to be a fun one, kind of taking a trip back, uh, really over a couple generations of restaurants that help make us who we are. But just as a quick recap, over the last four or five weeks, I've had some wonderful guests. I had Paul Corey on of Gilbert Robinson and the PB and J restaurant group. Um, I had Ron Reagan from Reagan's Riverboat, Whisker, Rivy, Ken Hill, Bill Latimer, Rob Baker, and then Ken's son, Mike. We're all here telling stories about Gilbert Robinson. And so it's, I've got a lot of, a lot of great shows there. Uh, if you want to go back and listen, just go to, can go to any podcast provider and search for Kansas City Food Memories. It's available pretty much everywhere. Google, Apple, iTunes, or, um, Gosh, uh, pretty much all of those. Just go up uh, over there and look at it. I have listeners in over 30 countries now that listen to the podcast. And the funny part about this, that that's not something that that I can really go out and find. That's people that used to live in Kansas City or have family here that searched out the show and heard about it, which is really pretty neat. Coming up next month, I'm going to have, among other things, I'm going to have Danny Cox, uh, a famous local jazz singer. I'm also going to do a show on Ruby's Soul Food. I'm looking trying to pin down the details and the date for Joe's Barn, and a couple other things. So if you have any suggestions on shows that I need to do, come by the bakery, Best Regards Bakery and Cafe in Overland Park, and uh, come in and talk to us. My wife Sherry and I are always there. I'm looking forward to your ideas and feedback on the show. Okay, so today's show, my guest today is Bill Crooks. And so um, some people will know your names, other people will not, but out of those guests I've done in the last five or six weeks, I think you know a few of those people. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and turn your mic on, the, the, the red button. Oh, no, no, right next to the off. There you go. Okay. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so like Ken Hill, Bill Latimer, Rob Baker, how did you know them?
1: You know, all of those ring bells because we were all involved in opening uh, restaurants throughout the the country, including the Houlihan's, Annie Santa Fe's,
0: Bristol's. So you did work for Gilbert Robinson. I did. How long did you work there? um, About eight or nine years. Okay. Yeah. Well, you were pretty young back then. I was pretty young, and
1: it was about as much fun as you can have opening restaurants around the country with that gang. What what experience did you have to get that job? I started... um, Bartending on the plaza, uh, coming home from school at KU, okay. and it kind of stuck with me. And I ended up training bartenders and opening and training, you know, other bartenders in other cities around the United States. So was Gilbert Robinson
0: your first job out of out of out of college? Absolutely, yes. Did your parents approve of you going to work at a restaurant after going to college? Um, not so much, probably. <laughs> but <laughs> Did they ever get over that? Well, you know, they did after I opened my first
1: one. And, you know, I remember my dad, we had friends and family. He kind of put some money into it, and he was shaking his head and going like, this isn't going to work. And I go, yeah, I might. Well, let's see where it goes. So where did you bartend? I bartended at Annie Santa Fe on the plaza okay. and briefly at Houlihan's on the plaza. Um, back early in you know the late 70s, 80s yeah um, and it was crazy because the, the
0: restaurants were packed on the plaza yeah. then well so um, did you work at any other location for Annie Santa Fe? Um, I did. I opened the Annie Santa Fe at Bannister Mall okay. i opened the Annie Santa Fe in Atlanta So I I was I was told because I've met probably 25 30 people that worked at the Gilbert Robinson. I've only had maybe, I think four or five of you on my show so far, six of you. But I've had people come to the bakery to talk to me, you know, tell me stories about it. And somebody told me that the Annie Santa Fe at on Bannister was the first place to do a million dollars. You know,
1: it probably was. And Paul Corey and I worked together at that restaurant. He was my boss, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. And he got me uh, promoted to general manager. Um,
0: and it was the highest profit uh, restaurant of all the Gilbert Robinson restaurants you know, I, at that time. It, what's funny is that when people first come to the show, especially if, or whether they've done radio or not, they say, OK, this is an hour show. I go, yeah, no commercials. And I go, yeah. They go, how in the world are we going to fill all that time? But once we get talking, telling stories, it's nowhere near enough time. Like Wait. with Paul, I mean, I, I need to do three or four more shows with Paul. I'd love to have both of you guys together. That'd be hilarious. But then I'll just sit back and just keep quiet and, and, and kind of uh, bring you back in if, as long as you know, if it gets too crazy. Oh, absolutely. And we can argue about who was better doing what at, <laughs> at, what, at what point in
1: time yeah, because well, we, we had some uh, competitive uh, restaurant financials going on when I was running the Andy Santa Fe's and he was running another one.
0: Okay. So, so you both worked at Gilbert Robinson together. Yes. And you both worked at the same restaurant and he helped you get your first GM job. Yes, I was cooking and bartending. And so I kind of came
1: through the culinary program at Plaza 3. Okay. And that's where Paul was an assistant manager at that time before he got promoted. And Phil Hickey, who later became the CEO of Rare Hospitality, was a general manager. And uh, so Paul went on to be a a manager. And then I got into culinary and then into management. And then we gang
0: tackled at the Annie Santa Fe. So now after... 30, 40 years of experience and stepping back from it. What do you think that the key to success was of the Gilbert Robinson restaurants? Was it the menus or was it the systems and the service that they created? You know, I think it's a combination of that and
1: the quality of the food. But, you know, most importantly, it's a guest experience. And it still is to this day. Um, You know, good food can't make up for bad service, but good service can make up for bad food occasionally. So you have to get the service piece right, but also the food uh, is paramount in the guest satisfaction experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination.
0: Yeah, I think so many people that – you know, restaurants was the one thing that if you have a passion or you want to just own your own business, because there's so many people that want to own their own business, say, I'm tired of working for somebody else, I want to do something – so one of the two things that they do is they either open up some kind of a bar or restaurant or they buy a franchise because, you know, they don't really have a vision or a passion other than doing something on their own. You know, I get that a lot. People come to me and say, well, we're going to retire and open
1: a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going like, well, you might just stand out of the street corner and hand out dollar bills instead because yeah. it's not, you know, it's not for them you know, the
0: the average person and the as you know, the hours oh, yeah. is in the rest of you know, yeah. I think a little bit later in the show, um, if we get to about twenty till, if I forget to ask you, I want to talk about franchises for a minute. Sure. Because yeah. you've seen it from the inside outside and just the you know, as a consumer and a small business owner, you know, every four or five years we see a huge fad of franchises. Yes. You know, that just take the market by storm and everybody says, I'm gonna do you know, frozen yogurt. You know, that's, we're far enough away from that. I mean, there was, there was one company selling, I think, three different franchises, brand names of frozen yogurts. So they had different, they had competing franchise networks that they would put right next door to each other.
1: You know, it, it was crazy at that time, if you were to go out and try to find a frozen Mm -hmm. yogurt machine, you couldn't find them. Yeah. And now there's a bazillion of them used. They're floating around. You know,
0: it was a fad. So, I mean, banks were loaning money for it because they said, well, it works. You know, it's a, it's a set thing. And then it didn't work. And so I think – I don't know what it is now. I think it's like Korean fried chicken and and there's like a couple other ones that's just the, the fad franchise to be able to do. But you we'll, know yeah. – we'll, yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about that because I know there's people out there, either them or their kids, wanting to jump in and do that. And I think you can give a word of caution to maybe put it in perspective to kind of – Be happy to. to, think to. About. Be happy to. Yeah, kind of as a public service. Okay, so when you worked with Paul Corey at the PB&J and – So, what was your degree at before when you went Um, foosball and cold
1: beer was my was my degree in college? So I was there five years, and
0: uh, so you had a liberal arts degree. You know, I have a liberal arts. uh, (laughs) How did how did I guess that? Yeah. So, you have a master's in philosophy.
1: I do, actually,
0: okay. and symbolic logic. I was big in symbolic logic. Are you serious? Logic. Yeah, for a while. Okay. okay, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, you thought maybe you'd go into programming or something like that? You know,
1: I had no idea what I was doing other than it was great to be in college yeah. in the 70s. And, uh, and, you know, so I got my career in the restaurant and bar business very early on. Yeah. From 18 to 21 yeah. in Lawrence Kansas. Well, you know, the
0: important part of college isn't it, so much the degree you get, but just the fact that you can follow through and you, you master the art of learning. Sure, sure, sure. Because that's that's really what you want. When you're a business of any kind, you, want, you don't really want them having the bad habits already of what you specifically do. You want them to be trainable where they'll learn your own systems. You know, what's interesting about it is I go occasionally
1: back to look at uh, graduate entrepreneurial business plans and mm-hmm. help judge them. Uh, coming from a guy, and they go, well, what's your background? I go, well, five years, no degree. Yeah. And everybody laughs, and I'm judging, you know, and I'm judging, uh, you know, yeah. graduate program,
0: business plan. Well, hindsight is, is is really special, though, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, the things that even when you at the early stages, you know, 30 years ago, what the general consists of what you need to master and understand is different from what it is as you go. Right. Ab- absolutely. And the restaurant industry will teach you a lot in a hurry. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you, though, but the, the, the general principles that you learned and mastered under Ken Hill and Gilbert Robinson, how applicable are they today? You
1: know, I think they're foundational is how I would describe them in the restaurant industry and,
0: you know... So what are the three most important foundational things that still apply today?
1: Well, number one is uh, guest service and being able to, uh, as a front-of-the-house manager, being able to talk... And converse with your customers and find out what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong, because most people don't complain; they just they they, they just don't come okay. back. Right. So if you can get them to complain or tell you what the problem is, that means they think that you're going to fix it, mm-hmm. and they'll return and you develop that relationship with okay. them, and then you work on those things. So I would say that's probably the most foundational is okay. being able to you know com- you know really interact with the guests in a meaningful way. Okay, and then number two would be What's the, you know, how do you feel when you walk into the restaurant? And back in the day, um, you know, Gilbert Robinson was a master in in rolling out restaurants and putting up diff- different designs and making things look really cool. So Paul Robinson, I, I was fortunate enough to open oh, four or five restaurants with him of, of different concepts and watch him do his stuff. Um, and that allowed me to you know, when I went out on my own to to do different concepts and do different mm-hmm. things and
0: and mix and match some of those interior decor items. Okay. You know, I wish I had met Paul Robinson. I've heard so many stories about him. Jasper's been on my show a couple of times, and he's told stories about Paul coming in and on the consulting side and, and when Jasper is looking to move from their old place to, their, the, to the place that they're at now. And I, my listeners, they've heard this story, but... You know when he was looking at the chairs and Paul said you you got to get rid of this furniture these chairs but and Jasper said but everybody loves these chairs that's why you got to get rid of them and he said and and Paul and this is my funniest line he told Paul told uh, Jasper you need to get 90 minute ass chairs and he goes wait talking about? you need a chair that's comfortable for about 90 minutes and then they say you know what I think it's time to go you know that sounds exactly like Paul because yeah. uh,
1: you know you want people to linger and have a good time, but right. you also have to turn. You know, from a yeah. from a financial perspective, yeah. you have to turn tables. Yeah. And, but you
0: know, I I just love that that he had that perspective yeah. and and it was able to come in and understand the importance of decor. Okay, so so what are three, one or two or three things that were a big deal then that you don't think is really as big a deal now? The way today businesses today restaurants are today. Um. You know, I'd have a hard time because it's a continuum
1: rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, jumping from every 10 years to something different. So the food has certainly changed over that period of time. Um, And and back in the day at Gilbert Robinson, when we first started out, it was almost classic French style, you know, Mm -hmm. sauces and those types of things. And now it's regional American, you know, ingredients married with different kinds of sauces. So I think, there's a change, but there also is a history okay. to it. So I'd be hard-pressed to say a lot of the things I learned at Gilbert Robinson don't apply today. Yeah. Um, well, okay. But well, just me...
0: in different ways. Okay, so uh, so for the listener, if you're just tuning in, I have Bill Crooks on with me, and he's done a lot of different things. We're right now focused on his time with Gilbert Robinson, where you were with Paul Corey and then... The gang. You, yeah, the whole gang. All right, so back then, I mean, the, the big... To me, the thing that impressed me the most about why they were so successful with everything was the training programs that they had back then. Do you think that anybody really has the luxury of doing training programs for employees when you can't find employees and you can't keep them as long?
1: You know, I think training was key at Gilbert Robinson, and they had a guy named John Haas who ran that training program, who did an outstanding Mm -hmm. job, and... You know, training now and the conditions we find ourselves in is I've been fortunate enough to be in this business for generations, and every time a generation comes up, it's like they don't work like we used to, they don't do this like we used to, and I say, well, maybe we can learn how to manage differently. Right. Right, and so, you know, even now, I think you need to learn how to manage to the people that are coming into the restaurant business yeah. and show them a clear path to success and what yeah. they can do, and if you can do that... Then they'll stick around. Yeah. And if you get the compensation right, they'll stick around. So yeah. it's not
0: so much them as it is us. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, I, I see that. But uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that I've heard stories about, like, when you opened a restaurant, say, uh, uh, Hooligans. Uh-huh. Okay. So you, you fully staffed it and you didn't open on day one after you're fully staffed. I mean, just I've heard stories about how you would have everybody paying everybody full time while you're teaching them on premises, doing what they're going to do, but without being open for business.
1: Yeah. And we continue to do that. Um, and most of the openings that I've been involved with for mm-hmm. the last 30, 40 years is you bring them in, you train, 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 and then you do what we call serve each other's where you bring mm-hmm. in people for complimentary yeah. lunches and dinners yeah. and, you pay, and you pay the employees an hourly rate. You're not paying them on tips And you practice, you practice, and you practice until you get it right. And you don't open until you get it right. And the people feel comfortable being on the floor in the kitchen or wherever it is. So, um, you know, it it was a multi-week process back in the Gilbert Robinson days.
0: And that's hard to do nowadays. It is really hard to do nowadays
1: because you're paying leases and you want to get open. Yeah, Yeah,
0: that's the point that that I was trying to get to, that that's... That was a luxury you had back then that does not exist anymore. You're right, right. I mean, it, you, you can't, you know, because you, if you're handling the social media side, the promotion side, you know, you want to get the word out. But you can't, if you have, if you're doing the pre-promotion, you get the word out of something that you're doing and you've got cars in your parking lot and you've got lights on in the building, people get mad if you don't take care of them. You know, and a
1: lot of times what we'll do, even today, is if they walk in and we're doing, you know, practice, serve each other, we'll invite them to sit down and we'll give them yeah. free food. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, you know, alleviates that, that problem. But you're right. It, it, it gets to be tense, and that's why I don't like doing a lot of pre-opening kind of yeah. marketing. Yeah. I'd rather do
0: it soft and have yeah. people come in so that... See, uh, but if you're big and successful like you are, you can <laughs> afford to do that. Right. You know, I mean, th- that's a luxury that that very few businesses and people have. You only get one chance to make a first impression. Yeah, yeah, and,
1: yeah. you know, and ideally I'd like to do soft openings, but yeah. it doesn't happen yeah. all the time. Yeah. And you open the doors and you yeah. just get just whacked.
0: Yeah, what I got, t- I think as a public service, we got to make the listeners and which we are, you know, under- as consumers and future customers, we need to be patient and understanding with new businesses. Absolutely. You know, because it's, you know, the old days of where it's when the day they open, they're fully trained and experienced are not there.
1: You know, I could go really deep into some of the social media, some of the, you know, some of the reviews that you get on your first night, people come in and they can't wait. Instead of talking to you and saying, hey, maybe you could approve this or do that and give you a chance, they can't wait to get out of the building and just write a negative review and hammer the place. Oh, yeah. And it just drives
0: me crazy. That's that's society nowadays. Yeah. No, you got to be patient. Support them early on, but you got to go in with understanding that you're helping them iron out the processes. Yeah. Be patient, then come back a little bit later. And then, but but you can't wait till later because if everybody waits till later, they're not going to make it too later.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And if you're out spending, you know, the prices, if you're out spending $40, $50 and it's not right, I mean, you have a, you know, you're going to be kind of annoyed that they didn't get it right. And, you know, so the the best thing to do is talk to somebody in the restaurant. And because most operators, if you've had a bad experience, will come or or, or make it right for you rather than
0: just go out and put it on social media. Yeah. You know, so the... um there's a new Thai restaurant in Lenexa um, on 87th Street that I went to last week or before week for Christmas. Fantastic food. And I walked in on a Friday and it was packed and there's like five people waiting for carryout. And I saw it was busy. I said, I'm sorry, I'll come back. And he apologized. He goes, I'm so sorry. I said, no, it's good. You're busy. He goes, no, it's good and bad. And so I stopped. And I said, look, I said, there is no bad to being busy. I said, don't apologize. I'll come back another day. I said, you're being blessed with a lot of business. Take your time. Take care of them. You're fine. And he just, just his shoulders just drooped like a weight was lifted off his back because he was so stressed, you know, but we need to be more patient and better customers. Yeah. It,
1: it, it is really hard during the openings and you are stressed. Everybody's stressed yeah. and, and you never, regardless of how much time you've had to yeah. prepare for it. Yeah things happen yeah. and then technology things happen and then everything <laughs> snowballs
0: yeah. from there. And I've been there so many times. It's just like, okay. All right. So I'm sitting here with Bill Crooks. So we've established that he got a liberal arts degree from KU Correct. lucky enough to go work at Gilbert Robinson because that was your bartending job and you Hi. hung around. So eventually you left that with Paul Corey, right? Right. Yes, and then when and you and you guys went started a business called Paradise P- Diner, okay. and oh, but you it, called it. Did you call oh, PB and J yeah, from the PB and J? Yeah. Okay, so. so we we can guess what the P is. Right. We can guess what the J is. The, the B is okay. The, yeah. Okay. P and B. Okay. So who's the J?
1: So J was um, Paul's son, who was about <laughs> five years old at the time. We were sitting around, and we'd been—I'd been cooking in the in in the kitchen, and we were trying to think up a cool name for our restaurants. PB and and you know whatever, and then his son goes, "Why don't you just call it PB and J?" And we go, "Well, that's a great name," and so we called it PB and J, and then. You know, subsequently everybody is trying to guess who the Jay was. Yeah. And, and so Jay's gotta be the guy with the money. Or, yeah. You know, so we'd make up stories of who Jay yeah. was over the years. Because that
0: was just the parent company, that wasn't the name of the restaurant. No,
1: no, okay, it was just a so, parent company.
0: So the Paradise Diner was the first restaurant you guys did. In nineteen eighty seven. And, and where was that location at? In Oak Park Mall. Okay. I loved that location because I moved to Kansas City in eighty six and I I just thought that was a big deal that See, I don't even know what year you opened. What year did you open 1987. Okay. So I, I remember going to Oak, because Oak Park Mall was a big deal, you know, just for, because I grew up in Wichita, went to college in Topeka, and then first real job was in Kansas City. And it's just, I remember just how neat it was having a real restaurant at one of the best malls in the Midwest.
1: It, it was really interesting in that we were doing some unique kind of uh, cuisine, okay. you know, kind of sponsor... A little bit around the southwest um, where we were using jalapenos and cilantro and beer blancs and putting it on things that people were, were really going, well, what is this? And I think we introduced the portobello mushroom that time to Kansas City. Okay. And so we had all these odd things going on. Esquire ca- came in and they did something that they were going to do the top 100 new restaurants. And we made it, and then they changed it to the top 50. And so we never got published. But but we got some national press, and it was this diner inside of a mall that was serving upscale cuisine. Yeah. And it, it was fascinating, and, and it was busy. Uh, and it was so much fun to be there at that time. And I was back in the kitchen then. Okay, so you had that for, what, 10 years? Oh, you know, at least, yeah. at least. I forget when Rainforest came yeah. in and took over. I remember when, when
0: they... Kicked you guys out so they could make space for them.
1: Right. And Steve, Steve Schessler, who does his
0: Rainforest, is a good friend of mine. But okay. I, I still give him trouble about them coming So in when you that. had that one, when, what was the second restaurant you opened? Was it the other? The, no, the, the
1: second restaurant was Coyote Grill. Okay. And to this day, that was one of my favorites. Um, you know, it was, it was Southwest, and at that point... Was uh, that De- Mission Mall? Yeah, okay. and it was Dean Faring, Stephen Pyle's, uh, Mark Miller. And
0: that was, again, a real restaurant with a bar in the
1: middle. Yeah, yeah, and it was relied heavily on chilies and peppers, and it was, to this day, one of the, my favorite restaurants that I've ever opened. And I still
0: get people calling me for really? recipes, yeah. So how different was that from Annie Santa Fe?
1: It was way different because it was, you know, any Santa Fe was kind of Tex-Mex. And this was uh, regional Southwest cuisine. So we were using, you know, a lot of regional ingredients and fresh style preparations and, uh, you know, know, ancho chilies and, you know, and poblanos, which Mm -hmm. hadn't made a a big, you know, appearance in, in the Midwest to that point. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be able to work with some of those guys and, and see what they were doing and and come back and, and, and work it into menus in the Kansas City area.
0: Okay. Did you uh, going back to Annie's San Fe? Did you ever work in the kitchen at Annie's San Fe? Um, yeah, I did. As Do a you know fact. anything about that Annie's dip? You know, I'd
1: have to go back and think about it, but it was the uh, was it the spinach dip? The well, no, it was
0: uh, they had the taco salads in that Great Big Shell, right? And they so they had the Annie's dip. That was the dressing for oh, that. Oh, yeah, 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 But there right. were so many. So when I first started the show a year ago, almost a year ago, uh, there were three foods that I was obsessed with, you know, that that, that were really the most popular with everybody. Uh, first one was the Annie's dip, the Annie's sauce. I wanted to figure out how to make that. Second one was a Plaza Three Steak Soup. And then the third one would be like the um, apple fritters from, Lewis, from, um, from um, Stevenson's.
1: You know the uh, Plaza Three Steak Soup is a legend. And oh, I've got
0: that mastered now. Yeah, somewhere my, my version's uh, better than that. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you'd not, have not, to be really good. Well, well, I, I, I we could. I, I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's. But it was funny is that those were my three obsessions. So somebody gave me a copy of the official recipe from Annie Santa Fe. It says, um, "Top uh, private property, do not copy." And so they gave me a photocopy of that. But uh, but so I made that test. I made the recipe off of that. And it was terrible. It was it was no it was nowhere close to what the actual Annie sauce was.
1: You know, I've got um, I still have one of the recipe books from Annie San. I have to look. I have yeah, to I back mean, to look. It. and sauce. I had the Plaza Three steak soup. too, yeah. because I was
0: cooking at Plaza Three. Yeah, uh, and a little bit of bristles at that point. Well, okay. Well, you know, I was getting ready to take a break. Um, but part of what I was going to talk about is the Plaza Three steak soup. So, uh, you know, I I create recipes. it has been my passion. I have probably a hundred cookbooks. 150 cookbooks. Not as, many as Jasper, but you know the recipe itself is only about 30% of what makes a dish amazing. And so I've tried several versions. This is going back a few years. Versions of the Plaza Three Steak Soup, and it just it it just wasn't that that interesting, you know. And I've had Richard McPeak on, and and so on my show, I've interviewed people all the way from Ken Hill, you know, you know, and, and a couple of his buddies that really started things to Richard McPeak and other people worked in kitchens. And, you know, and so, so I've heard all the stories of the various generations of the steak soup. So I know what the intent was, you know, and kind of what made it special. And so I was able to, um, th- part of it, you know, when it was first created was the, the steak soup was created to use the, the scraps from cutting their own steaks, the prime grade. Right. But then it became a point where they sold more steak soup than they did steaks. So then they then that was the first big change when they had to change the meat and all that kind of stuff. But the way I make my my I I'd call it Roberts Kansas City steak soup. The biggest thing that I do on that is that I do not use a bouillon. I don't use a soup base. My soup is 100 percent beef stock that I make from scratch. Oh. Yeah. So there's no the right way, way to st- do it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, but but that's it's a lot more expensive and it's trouble to do that. But it's just I've had a lot of people try my. I've, I've been selling it for I think for about. Four weeks now, three four weeks now, and it's it's been my passion, my obsession. It's sometime I want you to come in and try that, and we can kind of talk about it. But it's
1: so you're selling that at Best
0: Regards oh, now. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'll have to come by. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean it, it's it's mine. I, I, I saw I've I've always sold a lot of soup. I do a, a twenty hour chicken noodle soup where I I make the chicken stock and I simmer it for twenty hours. The beef stock I've ha- actually had to bump it up and, and I simmer that for twenty four hours. On your chicken do you brown the bones first or do you just um, make a I do? A, a side. I, do. Okay. I do. Yeah. There and you go. it's just you know I've got the the chicken frames and the bones from Amish chickens so it's not treated or anything like that. And sure. it's just it's it's really good food isn't really difficult to figure out. It's not fast and convenient which is what restaurants have to have. Totally agree. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not the smartest person on the business side of it. I mean, to like when I make the beef stock, I'll start with about $280 worth of beef that I roast and then I simmer for 20 hours with the, the everything that I need to do. After the 24 hours that I simmer it, I throw that meat away because there is absolutely zero flavor left in that meat. And you know, and it's just to spend that much money and throw that away just to make the stock it doesn't make financial sense, but at this point I I do it cuz it's my passion, it's what I really want to do and I I'm, I'm still the the where I'm not smart, where I'm doing my passion. I uh, hope to eventually figure out how to make money doing it. Um, That's always good. (laughs) It's (laughs)
1: It's always a good thing. Um, But doing it right and not cutting corners um, is kind of a philosophy of mine is you start with really good quality ingredients and you try not to screw it up Mm -hmm. um, and and make it overwrought and try to do too many things with it. So... It begins with the stocks and the bases. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, when I say base, I don't mean chicken base. Or, right. Yeah. But it, it begins with the, you know, that's where the start is. And if you get that right,
0: um, then you build on top of it and you build and, flavors. And that's what excites me, that everybody that I've talked about, the Gilbert Robinson, that was so important to them. It was. And when I talked to Ken, you know, to Ken Hill, you know, he talked about that. I said, when like Andy Santa Fe or Hulahan's or Plaza Three? Did you start with the name first, which a lot of people do? They start with the name of the business first, and then and then do that. It's like no, they started with the menu. You know what what personality they want the menu to have? They master all those, and the name of the restaurants one of the last things that they do. And I think that's appropriate. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of how we did it. And it, it, it's a
1: story when you open restaurants: yeah. is why is it here? How did it get here? You know, the Coyote Grill, if you think about the cattle drives coming into Kansas City from the southwest, and chilies and peppers coming up with it. So there's a story there that you can tell that that makes sense when people come in, um, you know, to dine at your restaurants.
0: Okay, so um, I was just – I'm sorry, I was reading um – a text I just got from, from Jasper. <laughs> oh. Sends things like that. All right. So I'll take a real just real quick break for the for the listeners out there. This is Kansas City Food Memories. If you love the show, oh, hold on, Rocco. Are you in there, Rocco? Okay, let's go ahead and open up the phone lines. Listeners, if you have a question for for Bill or a story you want to share, go ahead and give us a call at 913-586-7798. Again, that's nine one three-five eight six seven seven nine eight. If you don't want to to talk on the phone, but you want to text in a question or a comment or a question, you're welcome to do that as well. That's the same number every week for all the shows here at the station, so you can be able to do that. For the listeners out there, thank you for indulging me and in what I do. I own Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. In this show, I do not currently have sponsors, but that will be addressed in the next few weeks, or I won't have the show. But it's uh, what I do is that I love what I do. We spend the entire current conversation sharing stories, which I think is important to all of us in Kansas City, is to tell those stories, share them, preserve them, and pass those on. Now, if you like this, uh, the show and what we do, come to see me at Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. I'm at 119th and Glenwood, which is two blocks east of Metcalf. I'm across the street from Cheesecake Factory next door to Johnny's. I think Johnny's has been there about 30, 40 years now. So come by there and see us. The big thing's going on today. So I have the um, there's a listener that called into the show last week when I was talking about the the cinnamon wreaths that we have. She started talking about the Swedish tea rings, and um, and I told her I was aware of that, but I didn't want to call that initially. But I have made changes to the recipe and the presentation, and we now call it the the Swedish tea rings. And I have two versions for sale today at the bakery. I have the traditional cinnamon. And also have a cherry. So if you go to MakeThemSmile.com, you can see pictures of those. I announced that last night, and we got orders for about 30 or 40 of them within an hour. So we do have extras of those, and nobody sent me a text saying we're sold out. So come by and see us for that. The Kansas City Steak Soup, the Robert's version of Kansas City Steak Soup, is my... Is, uh, follows my passion and obsession with the Plaza 3 steak soup. Come by and try it. It's got the exact same vegetable mixture, seven vegetables, which is what makes it. It's got made with steak, natural stock. So I'm selling that by the quart. I made, I see, four times five. I made 20 gallons of that this morning. So I have plenty of quarts available for you to, to buy for New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Great way to start the year. So come by and see that one. So uh, go to MakeThemSmile.com. You can also sign up for the email newsletter. In the top left-hand corner, so you can be up to date on what's new, that's coming out, and things that I'm doing. So we'll be able to do that. So come by and see us. Best regards, Bakery and Cafe. All right, Bill. Uh, I'm back with uh, Bill Crooks from. He worked at Gilbert Robinson. He was also one of the founders of PB and J Groups. All right, so we we got started on that one. So you did the Paradise Diner, and then you did the. Coyote Grill. Coyote Grill. And then when did you open the second Paradise Diner up by the airport? Was
1: that, that was later on. We we opened Grand Street Cafe, okay. which really kind of put us on the map from the culinary side okay. as well. And then we had a concept called City Scene, which okay. was downtown. And we were a little early in the opening in the City Scene okay. uh, downtown. Uh, it did fine, I and mean, we had it open for a couple of years, but it just didn't really make financial sense. Okay. Um, and then we opened Yaya's, I believe, um, and then we went up north uh, and opened that uh, Paradise Diner up okay. north, uh, and later changed that to a Yaya's, uh, because that location on 64th Street was a little, kind yeah. of a little strange. But The Apollo and Bill's. Paul and Bill's,
0: yeah. Um, and then Yaya's and several different... Paul and si- Bill's had the best chicken marsala back in the day that I have ever had in my entire life.
1: It was great. And, and it was one, that was a fun restaurant. And, you know, we, we opened it doing kind of family style um, where we'd bring out different dishes and people could share. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a fun thing. And the pizzas were great. And the marsala was great. And, again, that's a... It was a, a natural stock and mushrooms. And
0: it was, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah. So uh, when... um uh, when we were talking about that. Paul was on. We were talking about this a few weeks ago, because so PB and J no longer owns, you know, like the Grand Street Cafe on paul and Bills, so but they're still locally owned because they were purchased by
1: the management, and everybody wants to own their own restaurants yeah. and, and and general managers, and as we started expanding. And as you know, we went through all sorts of heck in 2001, 2008, you know, recessions, this, that, and that. And that got us into the Red Robin franchise business because Red Robin sales were going up, high-end was going down. Mm -hmm. You know, so you, you really have to navigate through that and... And during some of that time, uh, you know, some of the general managers stepped up and said, well, we want to buy this business from you. And we're going like, fine, that'll give us the cash to open new businesses Mm -hmm. and to continue to expand and and do what we do. So that worked out really well, I think, for everybody.
0: I think that's just neat, you know, that to preserve the local version, the local part of, you know, a restaurant and local institution and get the next generation going and, rewarding the people that made it what it was.
1: You know, it, and it's fun to go in there and see recipes I did 20 years ago, still, you know, still on the menus. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes me smile to think that we were able to create something that had, the, you know, three decades worth of longevity. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: it's it, pretty and fun. I've, and I've eaten at both of those, because I live in Lenexa, at Paulone Bills and the Grand Street in Lenexa. I've eaten both those, but not since I've had Paulon. So now I want to go back and ask for those people and talk to them and, Oh, it'd be great. I think I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah,
1: it'd be a fun. It'd be, you know, it'd be a fun show, and Paul and I together yeah. would be hilarious. Oh, I, I, that we could de- pick. We could pick on each other. We're definitely
0: going to do that. Yeah. You know, it's just my first priority is I want to get Ken Hill back in. You know, when he's back in town, and I want to. I want to get those things going. But it's just there's so much information and stories here that it, this is part of Kansas City. It is, and it expanded. It was like a breeding
1: ground for restaurateurs, and and it they just popped up everywhere
0: all right so okay Uh, so i got a question here for you um somebody would like to ask you what your favorite dish is to cook and which dishes bring back the strongest memories for you um that would be a hard
1: one um in that i don't go backwards and recreate a lot of dishes um You know, the other night, for instance, I had a bunch of pork bones left over, and I did some Southwest, you know, kind of with chilies and, and, you know, coyote-style food, and it was great. You know, everybody, (laughs) I get asked all the time, you know, Bill's Chicken Salad, there's been articles galore about, you know, we're all connected in Kansas City through Bill's Chicken Salad. All right,
0: so so let's step out of the Gilbert Robinson, you know, the place that you had. So when you were in your 20s and 30s, Uh you know, working over there, where did you like to go? And what's a place or a dish that that you miss from somebody else? Um, that goes back
1: so far. I would have to say that, you know, there's dishes, there's iconic dishes, the Jaspers. You know, there was a, a restaurant called Venue that I used to eat at a lot with De- Dennis Kaniger okay. had. And I would go to have dinner with friends people that I knew and eat the food that they liked rather than go into a restaurant for a particular dish, um, you know, at, you know, at Grand street and, and some of the others, the, uh, you know, some of the iconic things were like the shrimp and grits and some of the stuff that we did with, uh, you know, I used to teach cooking classes on and use those summit halls. But, you know, I don't think there's one that I would say okay. of what we did that I would yeah. Like, say, yeah, I'm going to do that yeah. again. Yeah.
0: So uh, what was your favorite hangout in Lawrence? Um, or were you always working? I
1: was in, I you know, believe. in Lawrence, there was a place called Dirty Harry's that okay. had a foosball table that was probably my go-to place to go drink, you know, three, two beer and play foosball late at yeah. night and then miss class the next day. Yeah. And uh, that happened quite often, as a matter of fact. <laughs>
0: Which is why you went into the restaurant yes, business, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I got
1: you know I had strong background in it. Yeah. I was there a lot. Well, hell, hell or not out,
0: Yeah, you know that's that's what's kind of funny about that. But you know I want to have uh, one of the founders of the original Johnny's. You know I'd I'd love to just talk to him about some of the things that they've gone through and what they've turned into. And
1: you know Lou is one of those, and he's a good friend of mine, okay. and uh, he's hilarious, and you would love to have him on. Oh, I, I think because yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I was talking to Tim, he manages the the Johnny's right next door to us. And I, I just think it just did kind of jump into that and dive into to kind of see what all going down over there. So when uh, we were with, oh, somebody said they loved Paradise Diner and Coyote Grill and squawking nachos. Yeah,
1: so that, um, th- and thank you for that, because that was one of my favorite things, and we still get requests for it. Um, back in the day, there was uh, a, a cheesemaker in Dallas, Texas, and she did a, 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 a chota cheese with some chilies in it, and I loved it, and I called him, and I said, we got to have that up here, and then we mixed it in, into like a cream, and then put it across the chickens and topped it with a little bit of that cheese, and those things were so good, they were so addictive. And I still get a lot of requests for yeah. that recipe. So yeah, that uh, that was a good one. And it was called i I'll give her credit, a Dallas Mozzarella Cheese Company. Okay, and she still
0: cooks on an international basis. She hangs around Stephen Piles. Sometimes it's you find one ingredient that's so amazing, you got to find some way of using it. Yes, you do.
1: And and you're. It's always you know enlightening when you think you know everything and you really don't. Mm-hmm. I mean. You, you've only uncovered just a little bit of it in, 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 in cooking. Yeah. And so, you know, being in Dallas, Texas, and and hanging out there a little bit and eating some of those restaurants really helped inspire what we did at Coyote Grill.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's funny. All right, so um, after you left PB&J, you also you – and so we started talking uh, – for the listeners that were listening to the last half of um, Toby Tobin's radio show, when I was on there, I just mentioned that you were involved with Chicken and Pickle, which – which, with Toby, started a whole conversation <laughs> about why would you open a restaurant that just served chicken and pickles? Right. And so, which got us started talking about fried pickles. Yes. Okay, so chicken and pickle. Uh, what's the basic premise? What is it? So, um, it is a, well, the
1: backstory, I'll tell you the backstory. A good okay. friend of mine by the name of Dave Johnson, who's one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, came to me and said, you ever played pickleball? And I go, no, I never played pickleball. I went out and and played and I go, this is a blast. And he goes, I love this chicken restaurant in the Cayman Islands. And I go, what's it called? And he said, chicken and chicken. And I go, so what? And he goes, see what you can do with chicken and pickleball. And at that point, um, long story, but I had chefs in healthcare and Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, uh, trying to improve patient employee outcomes. Um, with, with food and I go, I, you know, I'll do the, I was, I was embedded at Helix Architects with a good friend of mine named Kathy Kelly and we, we had done these, these cafes and she really helped put the original concept together. And I said, we'll do it, but I'm not going to run it. Right. And a year later I'd taken four days off and yeah. Yeah, now you know it spread well, like wild. The form.
0: conversation with Toby was hilarious because he, he had he had never he had no idea what pickleball was. So we gave him a quick rundown, but that was that was a dead end that we went down on that. Then we got a discussion about fried pickles. I have never tried a fried pickle. I would probably love it. You know, fried pickles are great.
1: And we do chips and bread and you know and and what we did, I'm not sure, you know, like I said, I've stepped back over the last yeah. year, but we hand-breaded them and, and fried them, and, and they're great. And you can fry, you know, I don't personally like fried sweet pickles. Okay. I think they're a little funny, but, uh, you know, the, the sourness and the tartness of a pickle and deep-fried okay. with a little bit of, even if you just do something simple like, you know, a, the obligatory kind of ranch-style dressing okay. is great.
0: So for people wanting to try it, it's worth trying over there.
1: It is absolutely worth okay. trying.
0: All right, we'll, we'll 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 go ahead and do that one. All right, so um, it's, uh, ten, so we got just uh, about ten more minutes left here. So let's talk about the franchises for a second, because it's you know the restaurant business used to be all family owned, you know it was the big deal. Then I think in the fifties sixties you started having the franchises like McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Popeyes, you know all that kind of stuff that really grew, and then they were corporate owned, and then they would start selling franchises. Fast forward to, because you and I, I think we were talking about on the air, but also beforehand, you know, then the franchises, you know, there's so many people that want to go own. they want to do their own business. They want to do something. So the the one thought is to just go open up a bar restaurant, because, which is easy to start, because there's so many restaurants that, and bars that go out of business, the landlord has the space, there's oven there, there's bar equipment there, everything's there. They say, you can move in and get a month, two months free rent. So they think it's an easy way to start. So that's one option they have, and which you and I both know right. that's 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 why we're kind of laughing. Dis- that's like, a yeah. disaster, right? You know that you should ask them if they have a shredder to shred your money at the same time. But then, you know, but you know, we all have our dreams of wanting to do something. So the flip side is a franchise. You know, that's we can go back a little bit so we don't step on any toes. But you know, if you look at the frozen yogurt fad, that was what fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were I mean, there were probably what. 40, 50 frozen yogurt franchises sold in Kansas city. And now there's probably less than less than 10 left. Right. There's probably more than that. So as with the experience you have, somebody wanting to start their own business, what should pros and cons, just a real quick snapshot of what they should do. Well, I mean, on the franchise world, you, you, You know, what are you franchising
1: and what do they have developed that can help you in terms of systems and and things? And if they don't have that, then it's really, you don't want to be that franchise. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of good examples. I mean, Lloyd Hill, who's a local, he was the CEO of Applebee's. You should have him on. And he built Applebee's around the United States by uh, franchising. And they were real franchise advocates. As a matter of fact, I think one of their franchisees ended up having more units than the corporate did. Right. And then we were a franchisee of Red Robin, and the original concept guy got taken out, and somebody from New York took over. And um, but anyway, that was great for us because it was a price scale that was in between what we were doing, and you know, in the times of really a depressed economy, and that worked out well. And they had good systems and good training, and. You know, so that franchise worked out pretty well for us. And I left shortly after the Red Robins, and I think Paul got into some other franchises as well. Um, And I kind of went out and did my own thing. So franchising is good if they have the systems and if you're going to pay 4% or 6%, you better be getting something in return because the margins in restaurants are pretty slim. Mm Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, do your homework first, talk to a lot of other franchisees, and then make sure that the training programs they have are
0: top-notch. Yeah, because there's so many franchise. a lot of people looking at that, they just look at the cost for the initial cost for the franchise. So they say this one is $700,000, you know, that you because you've got to get all the equipment and everything mm-hmm. else you're doing. You have another one that's maybe $50,000 up front. And so they think, well, that's a bargain. I'm going to do that. Right. And. And it, you know, corp you know, big
1: franchises. They love franchisees when sales aren't so good, mm-hmm. and then
0: when they're really good, they don't like the franchisees right. very much. So well, explain <laughs> that they like it when it's not good because they're making money on right the initial franchise agreement right, which was what was going on with the frozen yogurt things right. They so, were. Yeah.
1: So, when, yeah, they get money no matter what. Right. And so when the economy is strong, then the franchise, ah, we don't care about those guys. But when things are going south mm-hmm. a little bit, they're going to sell a lot more franchises yeah. because it cover their sales are a little bit depressed. Mm-hmm. And the franchisees, yeah. the more they sell, the more, you know, they get in franchise fees. Yeah. So be careful is all I'm saying. Know yeah. who you're going, you know, the deal with the devil, right? Yeah,
0: it's, it's not quite the easy ticket that you think it is. It's not. Yeah. All right, so for somebody starting out a small restaurant or a bar, I mean, what 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 do they need to think about? Well, if, if it's just say it's not a big one like you've been doing, but if they're just going to do a small neighborhood joint. Um, it is, and I meet with a lot of folks
1: on, uh, on, on some of this kind of stuff, but it's you know locations number one. You know, is a location? Do you have parking? Parking is mm-hmm. huge. If you don't have parking, you know, it's really hard to be convenient. Um, what's going on now in the industry, and, and what we see a lot of is the to go piece yeah. um, is huge right now. And you know, are you doing what type of
0: service? Is it walk up? Is it counter? There's, there's do you a main thing that has effect. legs. I mean, I mean that was reactionary to the whole COVID thing. I mean, so you're seeing like the Starbucks and the Chick Fil A's—they're tearing down buildings and putting in double, double drive-throughs. But do you think that five, ten years from now, that's really what we, the consumer, wants? Um, we
1: could do a whole show yeah. about that. I mean, it's it's you know where are we going? This there's, there's a you know was on the state board of the Texas Restaurant Association. There's a big pushback on tipping right now. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, wants you to tip and, you know, people are going, well, well why am I tipping somebody? I gotta go get my own mayonnaise, mm-hmm. make do my own stuff, you yeah. know. I don't have my apron with me today. So why you know, why am I tipping yeah. somebody yeah. If, you know, so there's gonna be a pushback on that. I think that the to-go piece is gonna stay strong because people are getting used to the to-go and delivery business. And as it all washes out, um, I think that's going
0: to continue on. I think ghost Mm. kitchens are going to be a trillion-dollar enterprise. Still? I mean, because there's – I mean, that's – there's a lot of people think that the whole ghost kitchen thing has already peaked and and dying. Well, you know, depending on the
1: quality of the product and the brands that are – you know, it's all about the brand. Mm. And if you can build the brand, I think the brands will stick around. Yeah. Um, the ones that just you know throw stuff in a bag yeah. aren't going to make it. Yeah. Um, so, but I think the, the ones that are entrenched in cities now yeah. that do a lot of the office buildings and stuff to yeah.
0: continue to do that type yeah. of business. That's a big city thing. Yeah, well, I think the two part of my my thoughts on that is really self-serving. So, I and I know that, but to me, I don't see as the ghost kitchens is really the same thing as the drive-throughs. You know, for convenience, I don't see that as having legs because. I think what people are going to, because as the prices go up and people are watching their money, that when you're doing whether it's food delivery or drive-through, I think they're going to miss that personal contact. I think that that's already happened, and yeah. the QSR
1: codes and things that yeah. are on menus. They people don't want the QSR codes on yeah. the menu. They want to, yeah.
0: you know. So I think
1: you're right in that regard. I think that it's like Zoom meetings. Are, has legs now because we're so used to it mm-hmm. and it's got its place in our meetings. I don't like to zoom that much, but yeah. uh, you don't get nuance at all. And the same way I think in, and to go cooking, you don't get the quality of the product that you would, yeah. you don't get the nuances of it, but I think it's always going to have a place because people
0: have, you know, it's kind of ingrained into who we are and what we do yeah. now. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. And again, this will be a, a totally different conversation, but like you have remote workers, the workers love remote because it's easy for them. Businesses with drive-throughs love the concept of the drive-through because they only have to hire half the number of employees. They don't have to pay for the dining room, right? You know, and cleaning and, and all that kind of stuff. So from that standpoint, I understand why remote workers like that. I understand why drive-through food places love doing that, but that's not asking. That's not looking at the other half of the equation. You know, for restaurants, I mean, what is it that the customer really values? And I would I would agree with you 100%. And what role is AI
1: going to have into this? Yeah. And, and, you know, where is this business going yeah. in five to ten years? And, um, you know, if I was like the amazing Kreskin, I, you know, I might be able to figure it out. But yeah. I think all these things are going to come together into what's
0: next. Yeah. So, um, you know, that the big picture, you know, if you're big like Gilbert Robinson, PB&J, you have to worry about that stuff. When you're little like I am, I just got to find a little niche. And my niche isn't drive through. Mine is the, where you come in and meet and all that kind of stuff. All right. So, yep. So we're getting that. All right. So for the listeners out there, be sure to come by and see us. Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. We're at 119th and Glenwood and Overland Park. That's two blocks east of Metcalf, across the street from the Cheesecake Factory and next door to Johnny's. I hope to have on my show sometime. Please remember that we will be closed on Monday for New Year's Day. We'll be back to normal on Tuesday, eight o'clock to five o'clock. Kitchen closes at three. The rest of the details, just look it up on our website, make them smile.com. Don't forget that this and all of our other shows, past shows are available on all podcast platforms. Just search for Kansas City Food Memories. Rocco, thank you for um, help. Oh, gosh, we had a call on Doug. Tell, tell Doug I apologize to him. I didn't see that. Have had my uh, uh, face turned. Bill, thank you for being here. It's was a pleasure, and you're right. It went fast. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. It's, that's the number one thing people are shocked is how quickly it goes. And um, it, there, there's so many things left unsaid that we need to come back and talk to. So we'll talk about it um, off the air and um, see what we can do next. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs>
1: concludes this broadcast of Kansas City Food Memories.